Welcome back to the PeaceWorks podcast, everyone. As you can possibly tell, my voice is not very strong. Uh, I've been recovering from a little sickness and uh, was not able to keep up with the recording schedule. I, I apologize, but my voice just hasn't been strong enough to do an entire episode. Uh, so for today's episode, I'm going to replay one of my favorites. This is a discussion with my friend Darby Strickland. This was one of the first PeaceWorks podcasts we ever conducted, and I thought if you're just now catching up, uh, just now listening, uh, perhaps this would be a very good revisit to talk about counseling in the brambles. Um, I want to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Thank you for your support, and as soon as I can get my voice back to full strength, uh, we'll have new uh, content uh, here on the podcast. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast. This is Chris Moles. And today I'm thrilled to introduce you guys to a friend and a co-laborer, very important guest for the show today. It's Darby Strickland. Uh, Darby's a counselor at uh, CCEF and has really been helpful, I think, in the biblical counseling movement and drawing attention uh, to the work that we're engaged in in domestic violence intervention and prevention. Darby, welcome to the PeaceWorks podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's quite an honor. Oh, well, the honor's definitely, definitely ours. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit, if uh, just in case our listeners are not familiar with the work at CCEF or the work particularly that you do, could you fill us in a little bit about who you are and, and what your responsibilities are? Sure. I'm a counselor at CCF, and over my years of counseling there, I've just really developed a passion for educating the church um, with issues of domestic violence, um, domestic abuse, just having encountered it and sitting across from many women and wanting to advocate, advocate for them and their church families and equipping pastors. Um, so out of that, um, I developed a course um, for CCEF called Counseling Abusive Marriages and written a couple of journal articles just with the hopes of really equipping the church and other Christians to really care wisely and well. Excellent. So if I'm hearing... Um... I'm hearing you correctly, and you can maybe add some to this if if I'm not getting all of it. Is your counseling experience what drew you into the work, or were there other circumstances that really um, brought you into working uh, with the area of abuse? Yeah, I think, I, I you know, when you counsel abuse and you get it, mm-hmm. then you tend to have other people refer you abuse cases or friends. Yeah. Um, but what I think drove me to be more formal in the ministry and the writing and the teaching was when I'd go to churches and try to educate them. Mm-hmm. And I was just starting at zero or sometimes negative. Um, and for the most part, I just believe that shepherds want to love their sheep well, and they didn't have what they needed to do that. Um, and so it was really probably dozens of conversations with elders and pastors that just said, we just have to do this better. Wow, that is really encouraging to me, and I think to our listeners as well. 
Um, I have a real heart for pastors, uh, obviously, that I, I am one. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> when, I, when I hear that sometimes, especially in this work, pastors really get labeled as being uh, this or that or maybe thrown under the bus. And I, I'm with you, Darby. I'm sure there are some, some wicked men out there that, mm-hmm. that have authority and power and in the pulpit. But my experience has been a real lack of education and a lack of skill at the uh, pastoral level when it comes to this issue. So to me, information and yeah. education is just tremendously beneficial. So thank you for yeah. uh, being a part of that. Uh, one, of the, one of the areas that I think was very helpful uh, for me as, as I've been reading some of your work and interacting with some of the stuff you've done and be helpful for our, our listeners is an article from the Journal of Biblical Counseling entitled Counseling in the Brambles. Uh, this was a very, for me, this is one of those you could, if you could print this off or have a copy of this and hand it to your pastor, mm-hmm. this would be one of those resources I would want to get in the pastor's hands as an introduction. So what, what went into writing that? Was that a, uh, just a, an outflow of this heart that you're talking about, or were there other circumstances that brought you to that particular article? Yeah, I think that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted to create a piece that was church friendly, that used language and concepts that they already knew um, and understood. And that was just a basic training 101, a way for them to conceptualize and actually visualize um, what's happening in an oppressive marriage. So I really wanted to create a picture for them of what it is like for a sufferer. And I, yeah, so I use that article, article well, my goal was it, it, for it to be used that way, actually. Very good. My counselees could take it, yeah, with them. Good. So one of the things I appreciate, and you, you just alluded to this, was using biblical language. Uh, being in the biblical counseling movement, some of my difficulty has been uh, bridging the gap. Not only am I a biblical counselor, but I work with secular agencies. Mm-hmm. And so bridging the gap language-wise. So many times my friends are saying the same thing seeing the same thing, but they're using different language. Um, almost if you're interacting with, say, somebody from the UK, there's so many similarities, but then that one yes. word or that one way you phrase things mm-hmm. kind of puts you off. And so I found that I'm doing a lot of translating. For, for me, this particular article, and again, for our listeners, that's the Journal of Biblical Counseling, Counseling in the Brambles. And uh, one word in particular that you use here, how to help oppressive marriages. Uh, Can you help us understand what you mean by oppression? Because I think that's a very uh, good term um, in regards to biblical understanding. So can you help us understand oppression? What does it look like in marriage? Yeah, I would say oppression occurs in a marriage when one spouse is seeking to control or dominate the other spouse. And they do that through patterns of coercive, controlling, or punishing behaviors. And while, like you were saying, it's more common terms in our society for domestic abuse or domestic violence, I find, like you're saying, those terms are really loaded. Mm-hmm. Um, and so oppression, using that category, causes people to kind of slow down and think about it. But it also speaks, I think, really clearly to the domination that's involved in the relationship. Yeah. But it also opens up scripture differently for us, too, because it helps us locate God's heart for his victims. So even like I think of Zephaniah 319 a lot and, and God says, I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you. I will save the weak and the helpless ones. And just by using that word, we get this really clear mandate. You know, we see that power, the weakness, and 
and God's hatred um, towards what's happening. It just, to me, it just adds a beautiful clarity. Fantastic. I, I do very similar things. It's, it's really good to hear um, you articulate that. One of the phrases that I'll use is power over versus power under. And mm. uh, you can see that so clearly in biblical narratives. Uh, David's abuse of power uh, in, uh, what is it, 2 Samuel 11 with Bathsheba yeah. and mm -hmm. Nebuchadnezzar's abuse of power. Um, uh, even in the New Testament, you know, the church's response to Nero in Romans 13. But yep. the idea of power in and of itself is simply a thing. But that abuse of power mm -hmm. uh, to control is so devastating. And I, I'm with you. God severely um, views that abuse of power. And he is highly engaged in the relief of suffering and the care for victims. So uh, I love the idea of using that word uh, oppression. So in addition to the, the phraseology, what might be some, if you're, if you're in a counseling room, what might be some of the things that are setting off the alarms for you or popping up the red flags that's, that start to scream, this is possibly oppressive? Uh, yeah, and, and that's, I think that's what's been interesting for me. And a lot of what I've realized early on, I was pretty naive. I think I thought that people were going to come to me and tell me they were being abused. Right. Um, and so one of the things I've really grown in is oftentimes I have victims come to me for counseling for just anxiety or they feel tremendous guilt or they have a lot of stress in, um, in their environment. And they're not even identifying themselves you know, I'm being abused or I'm being mistreated or my marriage, I'm really enslaved to my spouse. So one of the things I start to listen for is false guilt um, or when spouses are, they probably aren't even necessarily reporting it as fear of their spouse, um, but they, you, they're clearly speaking in a way where they don't want to think, do things that would upset um, or rock the cause their spouse any stress um so when i'm listening to sufferers i'm listening for that those type of hidden messages i would say um but but i i think one of them that that's clear over time that stands out is just they're overly repentant they own things that aren't sin um, and they apologize for their preferences i love this this is a fantastic observation if you're listening and you're a people helper or you're a biblical counselor and you know, beginning your engagement in this work. I love this um, uh, little tidbit. I think Darby's really helping us think through something. I, I tend to, when I'm training counselors, say it this way, uh, abuse cases, you're counseling in a funhouse mirror. Uh, things that you normally see are in reverse. It, imagine distortion everywhere you look. And so as you're thinking through, uh, as you were saying, counseling a victim, uh, claiming guilt that doesn't belong to them, being overly responsible. Uh, the converse is true in working with offenders. Mm -hmm. quick, quick to blame, quick to claim victim status. And it is almost an upside down dynamic. And so you've kind of got to get used to walking on the ceiling. Has that been your yeah, experience? Yeah, that's exactly right. In fact, when I teach the class, one of the pictures that I use to show the distortion is an image and a spoon because it just flips a pitcher and spoon. If you look at yourself in a spoon, you're perfectly upside down. Right. So you can, so things, things are not what they seem. Um, and I think that is one of the, the things that I like to get across when I'm training is what you see is not what's, what, and what's being represented isn't what's happening. 
Very good. So in your piece, uh, counseling in the in the brambles, you you allude to the the skill building nature of this work. That early on, that those patterns aren't always clear to counselors. Mm-hmm. I know I lead some coaching groups and work with therapists and biblical counselors, and I know biblical counselors get a lot of heat in this area, but my mm-hmm. experience has been every people helper, every profession, it takes a tremendous amount of time, skill, and energy, and usually someone to come alongside you to help. So as you were uh, early on in your counseling career, maybe missing some of these patterns, what do you think changed to kind of mm-hmm. help you have a, a clearer vision or, or be able to see that spoon image uh, that you now share with your students? Yeah, I think two things. One, I think I went in naive and I assumed that marriage problems were relational problems. Yeah. I don't think I would have articulated that outright, um, but I think deep down that's probably the paradigm I was functioning from. Mm-hmm. So I would be focused on what was each person bringing to the marriage? What idolatrous sin patterns or strength and weaknesses were there that I could work with? And we know that God uses marriage to sanctify us. So it was, I was thinking it's my role to help with that process. But that really fails to capture and address the power and control dynamics that are involved with abuse. Um, And I think the other piece of it is that I just was so inexperienced and I didn't have the exposure. Again, I just assumed that people would reveal what was really happening. Yeah. Yeah, so now it's, um, there's a little bit, I had another counselor friend of mine put it this way, said, um, in every counseling case, you play a little bit of make-believe. Mm. And you tend to make believe from your own paradigm. And (laughs) one of the things in these type of cases is you have to begin to make believe a little bit from a different paradigm. And Mm -hmm. it is um, quite a difficult work. Um, And we're thrilled the more and more folks that we get engaged in the work. Mm -hmm. How do you, how do you draw out the heart now? Um, Knowing that these patterns are out there, the things that you're looking, looking for, what would it look like for a counselor to purposefully, and, and we're, not, we're not calling counselors to attach abuse to every relationship problem, yeah, for sure, right. but how do you purposefully go about and intentionally look for those patterns uh, in counseling without casting judgment? Yeah, I think one is just to honor the idea of its prevalence. Mm -hmm. And so just recognizing loving people well means that we can't make optimistic assumptions. And we need to take the problem of sin seriously because people's safety and their sanity is involved. And, And I don't think, I mean, I guess I think it's really wise just to kind of screen most people with basic questions. You know, are you afraid of making your spouse angry? I, I always like to do marriage from counseling marriage. I want to see each of them separately um, for a time just to make sure I'm doing some of the proper basic screening. And then I might start to hear things that'll alert me. One One of the big threads that I look for are themes of entitlement. Um, and, and that, I think, those, those kind of questions, you know, what happens when you disappoint your spouse? Um, those questions start to unearth for me and give me more, more, depending on what I hear, I will be more curious and pursue. Very good. So ideas we, of, you know, what does punishment look like? Yeah. Very good. Yeah, we, we have similar processes uh, in regards to those what-based questions. They they tend to give us more and more data, especially in that area of entitlement. I want to reiterate to the listeners, 
just the centrality of pride to this problem. Not all prideful people mm. are abusive or violent, but all abusive and violent people are prideful. And that entitlement <laughs> will, will ooze out uh, when you begin to ask those questions. Uh, what did you want to see happen? What did you hope your spouse would do? And then on the other side of the coin, as you're speaking to a victim or a potential victim, the idea of what happens when you disappoint? what happens when you don't live up to such and such right. standard to really get a tangible understanding of the impact. Uh, I don't know, uh, Darby, maybe you can speak to how you process this. I typically look for the actions involved in incidents, the motivations mm -hmm. behind those choices, and then the impact of those choices. I tend to work in those triads uh, with men. Would that be something similar to what you're looking for with victims and with couples? Yeah, I would say when I'm looking at the oppressor or when I'm in that detecting phase, mm -hmm. I, I, wanna, I don't want to just know the content of an argument. I want to know the screenplay. What did it look like to be in the room with them? So when you were talking about those hard things, what was the ways that disagreement was expressed? Like, I want to know where was he standing? Was he standing over you? What, what did the fists look like? Where there was a relaxed posture? I want to get a sense for what it's like to be in that room by asking those screenplay type questions. Um, so that's one way I try to open up the detecting piece. Um, I think oftentimes we're content driven and we're solution focused. So we don't, we miss getting a feel of what it is to be the experience of that argument mm. or that rage or that anger. Um, and then with sufferers, I often, because they often come a little bit confused or unaware of their dynamics sometimes, I'm looking for the effects of what it is to be controlled. So I'm looking for that depression, that unworthiness, the conflicts with their spirituality, their being isolated, feeling detached, the questioning their own sanity, like oftentimes I have women who come in with stories on bits of paper and they're trying to like piece together their reality for me. And they're, they're doubting their story as they're telling it to me. I'm pretty sure I said this, but my husband tells me I said that. So I'm looking for the effects mm -hmm. um, that they now carry with them as I'm talking to them. Fantastic uh, advice from Darby Strickland. Uh, she's our guest today. Uh, we're talking about fantastic article in the Journal of Biblical Counseling. Uh, counseling in the Brambles, How to Help Oppressive Marriages. And this idea of looking into the effects and spending time, I just, you know, as we're talking, hearing that you take your time uh, not to simply throw solutions against the wall is so encouraging in this work. And this is one of the mistakes I think those of us in ministry tend to make. We've got busy schedules. We are solution-oriented. We need things to conclude quickly and, and swiftly. Um, and we tend to rush a conclusion or throw a marriage-focused solution at a problem only to find out later that it wasn't a marriage problem at all, that mm -hmm. it was a heart problem or an oppressive problem. With, uh, with the term marriage uh, popping up again, you mentioned um, your practice of separating couples for individual care. Uh, this is one of those things that uh, we're pretty adamant about. Um, we're beginning to see it become more prevalent, especially mm -hmm. as abuse is identified. But what are some of the reasons that you have found that normal, regular, relational marriage counseling can really be harmful in these situations? Help our listeners understand 
our fear of doing marriage counseling in an mm. oppressive relationship. Yeah, I mean, the first and the easiest thing to understand is that sufferers can rarely tell the truth about what's happening without facing consequences mm. or punishments at home. Like, we, we know that they can't be honest. Um, but some of the things that are more difficult to kind of understand is oftentimes as counselors, we're unknowingly enforcing the rules of the oppressor. Yeah. Um, you know, I have oppressors come to me and say, you know, could you tell her to not talk to me with that tone? Um, I've had counselors come to me and say, you know, my pastor told me if I'm going to confront my husband, I should bake him some cookies and provide him some warm tea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my, my pastor said, my husband, I'm not doing a good enough job cleaning my house. So now I spend an hour every day before he comes home to straighten up. And they're just unknowingly feeding these unrealistic entitlements. You know, they're not imagining what's happening. Um, So it's feeding into that blame. Um, But I would say that our counseling is weaponized in ways that we cannot imagine. That is a fantastic term. I wish I had my phone. That's a hashtag (laughs) waiting to happen. Our counseling is weaponized. Uh, and in many ways, it, it, you know, Lord help us, it's, it's weapons of mass destruction mm. as we really, with great intentions, uh, attach marriage-focused solutions to problems unrelated to the marriage and completely related to power. Um, because it happens in the context of marriage, it can be easy, easy to yeah. see that. So your practice would be, I mean, even from the get-go, you want to separate and get data, but... I'm assuming as well, you wouldn't continue marriage counseling if, no. if you had a suspicion. No, that's correct. That's okay. correct. Yeah. Yeah, we would highly recommend that as well. If you consider yeah. if you're a listener and you're um, part of a counseling ministry practice or church leadership, this would be a great discussion for you guys to have uh, regarding policies uh, and how you deal with, with these type of situations. I want to talk a little bit about... Um, counseling practice for a second, and then I want to address the the course that you taught. Could you just share with us, um, maybe give us the Reader's Digest version, or give us the long version, however, Mm. if you're feeling like hanging on the phone with me, (laughs) of what the main goals are. So as a counselor, when you're sitting down and things have been identified and you're working with the oppressor and with the oppressed, what would be some, some tips of the trade you would have for us in dealing with each party? that maybe we could begin to put into practice? Yeah, I would say immediately our ministry priority becomes safety. Um, And so that just opens up a host of questions. Um, So is the victim safe? Um, Is is it safe for her to remain where she is? Are confrontations safe? Um, Are the children safe? Um, So we have to address safety first. Um, And then with sufferers, I work Um, to help them tell their story. I feel like one of the areas that they've struggled with is just in being silent and enduring such horrible things. Um, And there's such a redemptive um, aspect of being able to tell your story and give your story words. When you don't have words, you can't talk to others and God about what's happening to you. Um, And so that's usually, it's my, my focus initially is helping them tell their story um, helping them believe that they're not responsible um, for another person's sin ever. Um, and if they can see that they're not to blame, ulti- and in the end, um, they will fear their oppressor less yeah. um, and, and engage with them in wiser ways. Mm. Um, 
as far as the oppressors go, th that's more nuanced and, and difficult in some ways because the goal, again, is, is to help them give up power and control. Um, but to do that, you, you need them to have insight and or care about what the, that they're hurting somebody else. So a concept I often use to try to get that going is, is I acknowledge for them change is suffering. Um, they're going to believe that what I'm asking them to do is going causing them suffering. So I want to give them a vision of what it is to love sacrificially, to be like Jesus, that loving is costly. And I don't even want to um, get into debates with them about it. Um, yeah, I just want to acknowledge this, it, this is hard. It's hard for you, you know, given that your wife is nagging, <laughs> you know, <laughs> how can you serve her better? I, I don't even want to have a debate whether she's nagging or not with them. That's their reality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very helpful. This is a, I'm just, I'm just listening to your talk and I'm, I'm thinking about guys over the years and um, such a common conversation is just the frustration mm. uh, that, that men in particular who have had power, uh, the frustration of letting go of that power, not abusing that power uh, as if it's an impossibility. And then right. say it's so hard, and, and I will reply with, "Hard is not impossible. Mm -hmm. Hard is yeah. hard is the reality, right? Yeah. That's yeah. the expectation." And the good news for us is, the gospel, and in particular the the New Testament, mm. is so rich with instruction for how to do that. Yeah, and the necessity right. of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey, if you want to save your life, you got to lose it. If you want to to lead well, you got to serve. Mm. If you want to be first, you got to be last. Last, yeah. You know, the beauty and like, the the beauty in the being called to be humble. Mm -hmm. really. Yeah. Amen. And the richness. Yeah. Yeah. So I could sit here all day. I feel like I'm I'm at the learning tree. Uh, with that said, are you still teaching this course? And how can my listeners participate? Yeah, I think I think the plan is for CCF. Um, to produce it for online learning. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm pretty certain there'll be an intensive class coming that they can come and do a week long. It has not yet been scheduled, but usually intensives happen in the summer around CCF. Mm -hmm. um, and then the goal for that is then to package it to be an online class as well. Tremendous. And uh, if my listeners, if our listeners today, we're gonna go hunting for more information uh, where would they go on the, on the web? Um, for the things that I have done? Yeah. Um, most of my articles will be linked um, through um, CCF's website. And you can just type in my last name, Strickland, and the three articles that I've written on oppression will be right there. There's one on detecting, there's one on entitlement, and there's the one that you referred to. Absolutely. And I would recommend anything, uh, anything that Darby's put out, I want to recommend to you guys. It's a great, uh, she does great work and I know there's more coming and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what she has for us. This is a great time to be involved in the work of intervention and prevention. I, I know I don't say that with with glee or excitement mm. because it's a terrible, terrible reality. But what God is doing as he's raising people up around the world, around our country, uh, inside the church is super encouraging. And to have partners uh, all over the place committed to uh, safety, sanity, uh, healing, and hope is an exciting, um, it's just an exciting for, privilege for me to be on board 
can be part of the team. And, and Darby, we certainly consider you part of that work and a, a major part of that work. And we really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with you today. Now, what I do, our tradition, as we wrap up with this, I, I have a little statement I'll close with, but uh, we would like to give you the, the last few moments, any words of hope you have for sufferers, for um, people helpers, anything you'd like to give us by way of hope, uh, the floor is yours. Yeah, I, I think just recognizing there is such beauty um, in working and being part of God's redemptive story. And oftentimes when we're in these situations, um, where we face such darkness um, and, and, and have to carry tremendous burdens. Um, but there's just a beauty, and I, I guess I encourage people to focus on the beauty of imaging in those places. Um, and there's just no better place to reflect the glory and the goodness of the Lord. Mm. Mm. Praise the Lord. He is uh, glorious, and he has great things uh, in store for his people mm -hmm. as uh, we continue to reflect uh, his glory. And we really appreciate uh, Darby Strickland being our guest yet today, and we appreciate you guys listening. And as always, may the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace. Thank you for listening to the PeaceWorks podcast. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners such as yourself. If you'd like to make sure that this content is available week after week for those who need it absolutely free, consider giving through our Patreon account. You can find us at patreon.com slash chrismoles or visit chrismoles.org and click the Patreon tab. There you can give a dollar or two dollars an episode or give a monthly gift to make sure that the PeaceWorks content is available every week. God bless.